Well, good evening to you. Welcome. Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it and turn to John chapter 13. Uh, as I said, Good Friday is a, uh, it's a heavy service. It's, a, it's heavy uh, considering what price Jesus Christ paid for us, is it not? Uh, when Jesus comes and walks and lives and goes throughout his, his earthly ministry for those three years, uh, he encounters different groups of people. And there are different groups of people all throughout his uh, teaching ministry who have a tendency to resist the things that he say. You would think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who consistently test and try to catch Jesus in a trap with their words and with his words, trying to trick him or to back him into a corner. They're always refusing and resisting the things that Jesus says. You would think of people like uh, in the book of John, the rich young ruler, who as Jesus confronts him with the need to sell all that he has so that he might find treasure in heaven, he goes away sad. And Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You might even consider the disciples themselves because the disciples themselves all throughout Jesus's ministry have a hard time understanding who Jesus is, what he is talking about, what he is there to do, and what his plan is. And what we're going to do tonight is spend some time really sitting on one particular truth about the Christian faith. It's an essential part of what it means to uh, believe the gospel message that Jesus died for sinners. It's an essential part of really your Christian walk. In fact, this practice as we consider it this evening, forms the foundation for why the gospel message and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is such good news. And to illustrate it, we're going to look at the life of the Apostle Peter. In John chapter 13 is where we're going to be. You know, when, uh, when we gather together as a church on Sunday mornings, we'll spend time uh, during communion. And in communion, Jesus will say, take this bread and this cup and do this in remembrance of me. And we pause reflecting and remembering the weight of what it costs Jesus to forgive our sins. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he tells them, uh, pray like this. Uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. In fact, all through our Christian life, we're always confronted with the reality that we're sinners. Are we not that we're consistently and often reminded of the fact that we aren't who we want to be, we aren't who we ought to be. And what Peter is going to show us here in both John 13 and John 18 here as we end is that tension for us. What do we do with that tension? And Peter's going to illustrate something very, very important for us. So John 13 is where we're going to be. We're going to start here in verse 36. You should have a heading in your Bible that says, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Let me pray for us here real quick and then we'll go. Father, for these few minutes, we pray that you would impress upon us the truth from Peter's life that is a truth essential to our own lives as we gather. As we disciple our own hearts and focus and discipline our minds on what the cross is and what the cross accomplished, I pray that you would teach us tonight how to respond correctly that when we are exposed, that we would run headlong to the cross in which we find mercy. So Father, would you work in us a, a reflex that we might be quick to repent, 
that we might be sensitive to the work of your spirit that you're doing here in this place as we gather and uh, even as we leave, that we might be men and women who respond quickly when we're confronted with the reality of who we are. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. John 13, take a look at verse 36. Let me tell you where you are in John 13. Judas has left the upper room. Jesus is now alone with the other disciples and he gives them a new commandment, which you see above this passage that we're gonna look at here, and it's the commandment to love one another. And he says that all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And in typical Peter fashion, Peter is the one who raises his hand and has trouble understanding what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is talking about, and really where Jesus is headed. And what we pick up here in John chapter 13 is Peter's response to all that Jesus has been saying up to this point to prepare his disciples for what is about to come. He moves into the upper room discourse, which takes us from John chapter 13 through 18. Takes us through the high priestly prayer, takes us through the sending of the Holy Spirit, takes us through all the things that he does to prepare his disciples for what is to come. But before we get there, we get a moment between Jesus and Peter. You'll see there in verse 36, look at it with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? You probably think of Thomas as well, who asked Jesus, Jesus, where are you going? We don't know the way. And Peter asks a similar question here in John 13. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. So that, Peter, there's a time gap between what I'm about to do and what I am about to do is something only I can do, but there's coming a time when you will follow me afterwards. You with me so far? Here's the picture that Jesus is painting for Peter, and Peter's response is really the thing that is going to inform our meditation here this evening. What Peter says next shows you how Peter understands what is happening around him. It shows you what Peter believes Jesus to be doing. That Peter, as he responds, doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, would you agree that Jesus knows what is to come? That Jesus knows that there is an unjust trial, that there is uh, torture and flogging and scourging and the crucifixion ahead all through Jesus' ministry. When Jesus begins in John chapter 2, he knows the pain of the cross is coming. But Peter confronts Jesus with his own perspective and says, Jesus, there's no barrier to me following you right now. In fact, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And if you've read through the book of John, nobody says that phrase, lay down my life, except for Jesus in the entire book. You know that? And it's as if Peter says, Jesus, I will make sure that you accomplish what you need to accomplish because I will go to the very end with you. Now, it's hard not to laugh at Peter. I get that. It's hard not to laugh on Good Friday. I understand that as well. But Peter has no idea. The tension in this passage comes in the very next thing that Jesus says. Look at what he says. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have de denied me three times. So do you feel the tension? 
The tension in this passage is between Peter's confession and Jesus' confession. And as a reader, we look at it and we say, who is right? Who has an accurate understanding of what is about to come in the life of Jesus Christ? And the tension in this passage gets exposed in John chapter 18, which we'll look at in a minute. But here in John chapter 13, we have to consider together that Peter does not know who he is. Peter has an elevated self-confidence about what he is able to accomplish with and for Jesus. You with me? Peter's perspective on life, his perspective on Jesus, his perspective on who he is as an individual is funneled through his own self-confidence, his own abilities, his own personal strength, his own earnest commitment to do anything and everything that Jesus asks him to do, all the way up to giving his own life for the purposes of Jesus Christ. And it's contrasted with Jesus' words to Peter that say, Peter, you don't understand who you are. So it begins our time of meditation here tonight, considering the fact that when Jesus tells us who we are, we need to take Jesus at his word. That for many of us, we labor under a presumption in our own lives. I know I do this all the time, that I have an inordinate confidence in my own perception in my own abilities, in my own physical strength, in my own confidence to accomplish the things that I know I ought to accomplish. And Peter confesses something that he is unable to fulfill, only Peter doesn't know it yet. And there's nothing like a prophetic word from the Lord Jesus Christ to tell you how Peter's life is about to go. But Jesus's perspective is what is going to tell Peter what he's about to experience. Over in Luke, when Luke relates this, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. So the question we have as we move forward in the narrative, as we turn now to John chapter 18, is what is the sifting doing in Peter? So turn with me over from John chapter 13 to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, Judas has betrayed Jesus, has brought the officers, the Roman legion, to come and confront Jesus in the garden. Peter, James, and John, who were with Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, have fallen asleep, have been rebuked three times. Judas has betrayed Christ with a kiss, and now all of the soldiers and the servants of the high priest gather Christ and a couple of his disciples and head toward the courtyard of the high priest. And that's where we pick up the narrative. John, uh, John doesn't give you a lot about Peter in his gospel. He's only mentioned probably five or six times at his calling in the beginning, John chapter 6, John chapter 13, 18, and on the other side of what we'll look at here in a couple of days is John chapter 21. So Peter is highlighted and drawn out of this narrative that we might see something about Peter and therefore something about ourselves and our own relationship with Jesus. 
So we pick up here the prophecy of Jesus Christ coming to fulfillment in the life of Peter. Look at John 18, verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. It seems that John, this disciple, has some familiarity with this context, with this environment of knowing both the high priest and the people who would be around the high priest's house, and Peter gets left at the door. John enters in because he has some familiarity with the people who are here. Look at how verse 16 continues. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. All four Gospels relate what is about to happen here. That the conversation between Peter and the servant girl is repeated four different times in four different Gospels that you would know this is how Peter's descent begins. That Peter fails at a point that ought to be easy for an adult human male. That he's confronted by a servant girl, a slave girl. Look at verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Do you notice how the question is phrased? It's phrased in the negative, which means she leaves the door open for Peter to take the opportunity to confess that he is not one of, Peter's, one of Jesus' disciples. In fact, for Peter to answer this question, he has to actively respond in the negative to the question that she asks. He has to say what? I am one of his disciples. It's presumed that you're not one of his disciples, right? You can't be somebody who follows this person. And this very simple three-word response provides the pathway to what will become the first of three consecutive denials. He said, I am not. Now, look at verse 18. The servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. Now, if you've ever made a fire with charcoal, you would know that charcoal doesn't burn bright. Charcoal burns dim, right? And charcoal can burn dim and hot for a long time. So the servants and the officers have created a place where, that will radiate heat. But to get the heat from a charcoal fire, you can't be far away. You've got to be right up close. Now, watch who's around this fire. The servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them. Who was with Peter when we started this narrative? Well, Peter is in the garden with Jesus and the disciples. All the disciples fled except for John and for Peter. Peter and John followed Jesus, enter into the courtroom, into the courtyard where John and Peter are together. But now Peter is numbered with the very people who have accused and arrested Jesus. He's now among Jesus' enemies. And John makes sure that you know that he stands with the very same people that Judas stood with in the garden. That were moving, literarily speaking, to move Peter further and further away from Jesus, which is exactly what the denials do. For Peter in this context, Peter is creating distance between himself and Jesus. 
Which is odd because all throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, Peter is one of the inner circle with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are in the garden. Peter, James, and John go and pray. Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Peter is listed first in virtually all of the lists of the apostles because he has a role of primacy and leadership. But here, Peter has now moved further and further and further away to now be numbered with those who unjustly accuse Jesus. Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Now, the next thing that John relates in this passage is Jesus in front of the high priest. Why doesn't John continue the narrative? Because from a textual standpoint, everything starts to move quicker and quicker. And it's if John pulls the emergency brake so that you might see somebody who doesn't deny everything, but who speaks the truth about everything. That you might see somebody who doesn't conceal what he's done, but stands in front of the high priest saying, you have seen me preach and teach. Ask anybody. My ministry has only and always been public. You see, Jesus deny nothing and confess everything about who he is and what he has done. And in a sense, he functions as a foil, as a contrast to Peter. You know what's ahead for Peter, but you are amazed at the tenacity and the discipline and the strength of Christ, who stands in the face of his accusers alone and faces the injustice and what is about to come and does not flinch. Now move down as we consider Peter and the denials that follow all the way down to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. Commentators don't make a lot of this, but it's interesting that Peter's focus consistently begins to turn inward upon himself. That he avoids being numbered with the disciples. He is considerate of how cold he is, and he begins to, in such a way as to make his needs and wants a priority. He stands warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Virtually the same question that the servant girl asked. And in the dim charcoal fire light where shadows are cast on everybody around the corner, they're beginning to put pieces together. They're beginning to ask questions about the individual that is unknown to either the high priest or the servants or the soldiers who are there. And they're recognizing that he is out of place. He's not like us. He denied it again and said, I am not. Now the text moves quicker here. Everything starts to happen. That the first domino has fallen with the servant girl. That the servants and the officers now accuse and ask Peter. And then everything moves to finally close and fulfill Jesus' prophecy. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest. Now, we're moving even closer in terms of division, aren't we? That we've had Peter, James, John, disciples, Jesus in the garden. And the crowd with Judas and the high priest and the Romans come. And now what's happening is we're starting to sift out the sides, aren't we? 
We're starting to move toward the fact that Jesus is only and all alone and is going to be the one who alone can accomplish what he has set out to do. One of the servants of the high priest. In fact, a relative of the man whose, pe- whose ear Peter had cut off. Now, at this point, being a disciple of Jesus is not a crime. But attempted murder is. And now Peter has been confronted with the fact that this servant girl has said, you're not one of his disciples, and he denied it. And the servants and the officers have considered that you aren't one of his disciples, are you? And now Peter is faced with the fact that they're putting him at the, uh, at the scene, that he had the sword, he was at the garden. I know the individual whose ear he cut off. I'm related to him, he's my cousin. And you can imagine Peter's distress at this point as they're about to now consider him a felon. He asked, did I not see you in the garden with him that we have time, we have place, we have the weapon? Verse 27, again, Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. You know, in in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that let a fact be established by two or three witnesses. And it's as if in this moment, Peter is confronted with the truth of who he is. Would you agree? That Peter has come to a realization about himself that he has denied since chapter 13. That Peter was the big man on campus to say that uh, it's recorded in Luke. The same encounter between Jesus and Peter. It says that all these may fall away, but I never will. As Peter points to the other disciples. And Peter is soloed. He's pulled out of the story and brought to a moment where he is confronted with the fact that he is not strong, but he's weak. He is not confident He's humiliated. He is not able. He is unable. And John doesn't even record Peter's reaction. The other gospels tell you that he left weeping bitterly. The book of Luke says that at this moment, Jesus turns and he looks at Peter. As if to say, I knew everything about you. I knew this would happen. I told you this would happen. And the circumstances that have come together in Jesus' prophecy have, have served to teach Peter a lesson about himself. Would you agree? That Peter didn't know who he was at the beginning. It took circumstances. It took pressure. It took sifting. Now, I mentioned that passage from Luke. Satan has demanded permission that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. What is happening? I, have, I grew up in, um, with a dad who did a lot of uh, landscaping. And uh, during that time, we would have, we had a rocky soil. And uh, what we would do from time to time is take our rocky soil and we would put it through a sifter. And at the beginning, a sifter is the separator, right? It reveals what is mixed and mingled so that the good soil falls through the sifter 
and that you can use the good soil. But the rocks, the heavy things that don't fit through the sifter are revealed for what they are. So the question is, if Jesus has prayed for Peter's faith, and Peter has now failed gloriously, then what is happening for Peter? Peter is being confronted with the fact about who he is. Peter is being brought to the end of himself so that his faith, what the New Testament says, what Peter's own epistle says, that faith more precious than gold might be revealed. See, for a lot of us, we labor under this delusion that we are more godly and more put together than we'd like to admit. And there's nothing like circumstances and pressure and accusation that reveal to us who we are. And that's the truth of Good Friday. Because when we look at the cross, we do see Jesus there. We do see his profound love. We do see his discipline and his focus. And that he sets his face to go and do the Father's will. But if we're at all honest about ourselves, that the cross exposes us, doesn't it? It exposes us as those who ought to be up there for the crimes that we have committed. It exposes us for the sinners that we truly are. So the, the story of Peter here shows us that Jesus' word about Peter is exactly true. And to apply that to us, what Jesus says about us on the cross is exactly and precisely true. That you and me are sinners. You and me have no hope in ourselves. You and me are not smart enough, aren't wise enough, aren't committed enough, aren't earnest enough to become the people we ought to be. And the cross confronts us with that reality. If nothing else, the cross exposes us and reveals us that we are deserving of the condemnation and the punishment that Jesus took for us. In the New Testament, <clears throat> there's a word called homo logeo. Homo means the same. Logeo means the word. It means to say the same thing as. And it's translated in the English as confess. And as we consider Good Friday, as we consider the next 72 hours, as we move toward the celebration on Sunday that proclaims Jesus' victory over death and Satan and sin, we remember on Good Friday that we are exposed as sinners in need of a Savior. We're exposed with the fact that a lot of times we say things about ourselves that paint a different picture than the things that Jesus says about us. So what we're going to do, I'm going to call Jared and the band up, 
and we're going to continue to sing, and we're going to give time and space for us to reflect on the cross, but to take an opportunity to set our hearts and open our hands to confess the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. John puts it like this in his epistle. 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are all tempted to avoid the ugly truth about who we are. We are all tempted to conceal or deny or to avoid the difficult reality that is the bad news before the good news. John says this, just two verses later, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, which is really the tension between Jesus and Peter. Who is the liar? Peter. Who is the one that tells the truth? Jesus. So that as we consider the cross, as we consider who we are in light of the cross, as we consider what it cost Jesus to save sinners, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father in heaven, we pause for just a moment to reflect and to remember that we are sinners in need of a savior. Apart from the coming of your son, we have no hope. Apart from the coming of your son, we remain unaware of who we truly are. We remain deceived about our situation, overly confident in our own abilities, and unable to become what is only possible through the mercy and forgiveness of sins. So would you give us here this evening as we meditate on your word, the courage to confess? Would we admit what you already know about us and that as we confess, we consider the fact that Jesus died to save sinners like us? It's in his name that we pray, amen.